0: thank you guys for your generosity with that. And that is the end of our long announcement time. Are you guys done with that? No, it was a special time. I'm sure. Okay. Uh, turn in your Bibles to the epistle of Jude. Jude is, uh, right before the very last book revelation. Uh, it's a one chapter book, a short letter. When we have Second uh, John, Third John, and then Jude all in a row, they're all one chapter books. So it's been kind of a fun little series, hasn't it been, going through these short little letters? Uh, but Jude is, uh, is probably one of the longer ones. Let's see, before I just say that, I can just look back. So Second John is 13 verses, Third John is 14 verses, and then this one chapter book up in the 25 there. Uh, So we're going to be spending a couple weeks in this when I get back as well. And will you guys stand with us as we pray and maybe reset your mental clock after those long announcements uh, so that you don't tune out during the study thinking that we need to wrap this shindig up. We're just getting into the word now. It's the important stuff. And as we do that, I'll read if you want to follow along. Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints." For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord having saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain But left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts. In these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they've gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for prophet, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the wind, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up to their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them uh, of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God, our savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. We just read through a whole book of the Bible. Pretty awesome, huh? Maybe for you today, that was the first time you've ever read through a whole book of the Bible. Good place to start, huh? Well, it is a short letter, but Jude gets right into it. He's obviously got a bone to pick with some of these guys that are creeps. Some of these guys that are coming in and leading people astray and really fleecing the flock, ungodly men. Uh, Just bringing destruction with them. If you read church history, this is a letter that really uh, typifies so much of what every culture goes through throughout every age. You know, we're going to see it more in the last days, but it's something that Jude obviously went through. It's something that uh, the, the Puritan preachers went through. It's something that Charles Spurgeon went through, and something that we go through even in our own day. We have to be uh, on guard and on point, watching out for these types of persons. Charles Spurgeon lived through a time when, even there in London, uh, the Christian church was beginning to abandon uh, the belief of the inspiration and inerrancy of the Scriptures, and of course, when you neglect the word of God and when you throw out the theology and the doctrine of the, of the purity of the Bible, out goes every other important thing uh, of belief. And when you throw out belief, you bring in all kinds of debased behavior. And so Spurgeon began to be very vocal in his day against this type of heresy, abandoning a value for the word of God. He knew that people were being deceived. And with those preachers in Spurgeon's time there in London, they were also abandoning a belief in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, which means that Jesus Christ's blood and what he did on the cross pays your way, paves your way, pays your way, uh, and takes your place. Uh, The wrath of God was upon him at the cross. He substituted himself for you. It should have been us uh, being dealt the blow of the wrath of God. But Jesus took our place. There at the cross, his blood was shed for the remission of sin, for the forgiveness of sin, for the removal of sin. And, uh, and that's part of the gospel. That's a very important part of the gospel. And so Spurgeon began to preach outspokenly against men, even in his own city, who were uh, floundering on the true doctrines of the Christian faith. And here's something that he says in that time in one of his sermons. He says, these destroyers of our churches appear to be as content with their work as monkeys with their mischief, that which their fathers would have lamented. They rejoice in avid atheists are not a 10th as dangerous as those preachers who scatter doubt and stab at faith. The church throughout all of history has triumphantly survived the attacks, which has come from outside. The church throughout history has scattered itself to ruins when the, uh, when the declensions have come within. And so what a word for, from Spurgeon for us as we come to the book of Jude, to always be on point, to always have our Bibles in hand, uh, to always be ready to give a defense for the faith and to always be ready to defend orthodox Christianity and orthodox views. It's interesting in verses 12 and 13 when Jude gets into what these guys are like, he says there's spots in your love feasts uh, they're eating there with you without fear. They serve only themselves. They're like clouds without water. They're carried uh, away by the winds. They're like late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up to their own shame, wandering stars, rumors reserved, the blackness of darkness forever. He just goes on. He goes into another similar thing in verses 16 through 19. These guys are this and these guys are this. And you're just like, tell us how you really feel, Jude. You know, uh, he's, he's just not putting up with it. And while it does say that these guys were set out and marked for condemnation from a long time ago, they haven't taken God off guard. Uh, The tone of this letter isn't so much condemnation, one preacher said. It's more one of consternation. Just a frustration that these guys are just still about coming into the church, pulling their mischief like those monkeys, you know, and uh, and that people are putting up with it instead of calling it out. (coughs) Excuse me. And so as we get into this, and we'll spend a few weeks, when I get back in this, it's important that we simmer down just a little bit, though, as we're studying it. What do I mean by that? Because as we read it, we begin to kind of get fired up with Jude, and we begin to kind of pick out movements within our own day and age that we would kind of lump into this group of people, and we would kind of get out the, the farmer's pitchforks and the torch, And kind of be like, yeah, kill the beast, kill the beast, you know, and uh, let's go get them and let's start like just calling them out like crazy. And there's a few problems with that. All right. And the things are this, there needs to be a heart of humility as we go about this. There needs to be a heart of grief as we go about this, because as we begin to start calling out apostates and heretics, uh, we begin to lose a bit of the compassion of Jesus as well. We begin to say things like, they're going to hell in a handbasket. We don't even really know what that means exactly. But I'll tell you one thing. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist from the 1800s, said, whenever I preach about hell, I've got a tear in my eye. So what I mean is, as we begin to think about heretics that are out there today, as we begin to think about the false preachers that are out there today, as we begin to think of these guys that are, uh, you know, clouds without water being driven by the wind and so on and so forth. Like, let's just set our pitchfork down for a second, and let's go to prayer for these people. They have souls, they have eternities, and and let's actually look at how they really do compare with these people, because there may be some varying approaches to how we might come to them, uh, whether as brothers and sisters, or even as um, opponents for the gospel's sake. And so, Lord, would you give us, as we think of these individuals, and as we begin to contend earnestly for the faith, give us hearts that want to win them and that will defend the faith, but that care about their eternity as well. And so as we get into the the chapter here in verse 1, we begin with a warm greeting. Someone said this warm greeting shows some of the winsomeness of the text. It's a warm greeting. It's something that, you know, Jude just sets him out, himself up with hope. As he gets into a tough and tricky subject, he starts out with some beautiful hope. And I don't know if you noticed it when we closed out the book. He ended it with some hope as well. A wonderful time of worship. A wonderful time of doxology. And so as we look at verses 1 and 2 here for a moment, one guy wrote that the main idea here is that because of mercy and peace and the love of God shown through Jesus Christ, Christians can rejoice with their status as the Lord's servants. Check it out. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. So we have this guy Jude, and I don't know if you know who he is right away, but to be honest with you, as I began to search the scriptures for a dude named Jude, um, I went a few different places and found out that, In 10 minutes, I still didn't know who it was, okay? Uh, And why is that? Because there's Judes and Judases and Judas in the Bible. There's five different Judes in the New Testament. So which one are we speaking of? Well, he helps us out just a little bit more, and that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. Okay, that doesn't help us at all. Why? Because all of them are, except for Judas Iscariot. John, you almost called me out, I know. Uh, All of them were servants of Christ, all right? So that doesn't help too much. But then he goes on to say... But I'm also the brother of James. Okay, so I'm going to help you out. We're going to really narrow it down to who wrote this book, okay? This Jude was the half-brother of Jesus himself. It's pretty crazy to read this book and to have just read it and to realize that we're reading the writings of a guy that grew up with Jesus. Went to the splash pad in Nazareth with Jesus, you know? Had that perfect brother that could do no wrong, and why can't you be like your older brother, Jesus, right? This is what Jude grew up with, and James. Those guys were full-blooded brothers, and then they got this half-brother, Jesus, you know, he's the son of God, you know. Yeah, okay, well, uh, that was the claim, for sure. The interesting thing is is that during Jesus' ministry, James and Jude didn't believe Jesus. Can you believe that? When Jesus was building the tables and the coffee tables, you know, and and whittling the stick, you know, and being the carpenter, uh, as Jesus was beginning his earthly ministry and began to do miracles and rise people from the dead and heal the leper, (coughs) excuse me, his brothers, his own brothers didn't believe him. And it's interesting because there were times when Jesus was in a house ministering to people And his mothers and brothers would come and kind of be like, hey, come on, get out of there, Jesus. Come on. Let's go about some of the family stuff. And Jesus is like, who are my mothers and brothers? It's those that do the will of God. A little bit of a slap in the face to mom. My mom doesn't appreciate when I talk about her like that. My mom, Cindy, right? She, that's mom. She's my mom. Okay, for sure. Uh, But Jesus was like, my brothers and my sisters, they're the ones that are doing the will of the Lord. There's other times when you read in Matthew chapter 13 about these brothers, when Uh, Jesus began to do ministry and miracles in Nazareth and the, the hometown crowd didn't get him, didn't understand him kind of had that attitude of like, who does this guy think he is? We grew up with this guy and he's saying that he's the son of God and that we should worship him and we should follow him and that he brings the forgiveness of sins and all these things and the kingdom of God is through him. Like that's a stumble, a stumbling point. And then they begin to reason with themselves and they say, isn't this the the son of Joseph and the son of Mary? Isn't this the brother of James and Jude? Who is this guy? In other places, it says that the brothers of Jesus thought that he was mad, that he was crazy. But then something happened. Their own brother died on the cross. It doesn't appear that they were there to watch it. Mary was there. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he said to John, John, behold your mother, Mary, mother, behold your son. It doesn't appear that that James and Jude were there. But something happened. What do you think it was that happened that caused these brothers who grew up with Jesus thought he was crazy to all of a sudden believe, be followers, write books of the Bible such as James and Jude? What was it? What was the act? It wasn't just the death on the cross. There was something more. It's something we're going to be celebrating, not next week, but the week after next. The resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus was the vindication of all that Jesus said and did. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to James. And if he appeared to the brother James, I'm assuming that Jude was in the mix too. Because as you read the book of Acts chapter 1, after Jesus ascends to heaven, the early church began to gather... And there were James and Jude in the upper room, part of the part of the first century church, and they would, of course, eventually become martyrs for the Christian faith after having written books of the Bible. So, kind of a special thing to know who the author is here, isn't it? Um, and yet, if it were me, and it's a good thing I haven't written any of the books of the Bible, but I know my own dumb pride and idiocracy or whatever that is, you know, but. In the idiocacy, yeah, okay, I would probably introduce myself as something like this. James, the brother of Jesus Christ. And also of that other guy, like the Apostle James. Like, we're kind of a big deal. I don't know if you know, right? Son of Mary, huh? Put that in your book, right? No, it's... First thing he says is a word of humility. I am a bond servant to my half-brother. I am a bond servant. And as you read multiple places throughout the book of Jude, he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting side note to all of you siblings out there. This is actually a great way to treat your brothers and sisters, anyways. Even if not, they're not the Lord Jesus Christ. To esteem them is better than yourself. To be servants of them just as Jesus does as he came and lived the life of a servant. But it does help when he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. You know, Jude is like, I'm his bondservant. I'm a doulos. I'm a guy in the Greek who willingly lays my life down to be a slave of Jesus for the rest of eternity. And so that's how he introduces himself. I'm also the brother of James, And he's writing this letter, and in my one week of studying, uh, I wasn't uh, able, just in what I read, to find out exactly who this was penned to. It probably is a quick search. But he does write, in a simple way, to all of those who are called. And you might underline these three things. Jude was a guy who liked to write in trios, and you'll see that throughout this book. There's three things at a time that he kind of tackles. Or displays or brings out. And here in verse 1, he's writing to those, number one, who are called. Those who are called. This is a phrase that speaks of the Christian's past. It really speaks of from eternity past. Where the sovereign God foreknew you. And predestined you. And in a sovereign, omniscient, all-knowing way called you christian to be brought out of darkness as first peter chapter 2 verse 9 says that you're a chosen generation it says you're a royal priesthood a holy nation called to be his own special people that you would proclaim his praises the one who called you and you'll see it at the bottom of the screen out of darkness and into his marvelous light that's a pretty neat thing that if you're a Christian here today, you have got this incredible past before you were born, before, as my mom used to say, you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye. Still don't really know what that means, but uh, you go even farther back from before the foundations of the world, and you find that he had predestined you, kind of like seeing your true love at the other side of the uh, you know, high school prom room or wherever it was at, You know, and she doesn't see you, but you see her. And you just say, I'm going to marry that girl. You know, she doesn't even know you're there. But you foreknew this is going to happen. You know, wedding bells, I'm hearing them already. Okay, That's not exactly how it went with us, in case you're wondering. But There was a foreknowledge. There was a predestining. There was a calling. And it even speaks of the effectual calling that, that brought us into the family of faith. That brought us into believing enabling us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for lordship and for forgiveness of sins. And because of that, now we just want to worship him as that First Peter verse says, we want to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Uh, I always think when I hear the word called, I remember um, being a pure movie watcher in my youth uh, when my mother would... Uh, slip in the VHS copy of Sister Act. I don't know if you remember that wonderful Whoopi Goldberg special. And I just, as a kid, I remember the little joke of, uh, you know, one of the nuns saying to Whoopi, uh, uh, when did you receive your calling? You know, and does anybody remember this? Like, my calling? And she has no idea what they're talking about. Yeah, your calling. And, of course, she goes into something about someone calling her on the phone. And it's kind of a perversion of the Christian calling that we have as children of god that he has called us and purposed us for good things look at romans 1 7 it'll be on the screen it says to all those who are in rome beloved of god called to be saints so there's this group of individuals being written to in rome they were the beloved of god and they were called to be christians christians are saints You don't have to be blessed by the pope or by the bishop to be a saint. I think it was John Corson that said you're either a saint or you're an ain't. All right. What are you today? Are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? Is he your Lord? Is he your master? Is he your savior? Have you put your trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of sins from what he accomplished on the cross? If that's the case, you're a saint. You're called. To be a saint. When did you receive your calling? Maybe for you today it was right now today. Right now. I want that. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a saint today. I want Jesus' blood to cleanse me of my sins. And I I need forgiveness. I know that he's true. And I know that he's right. I want to follow him. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that Jesus has saved us and called us with a holy calling That is not according to our works, but according to his own purpose in grace. So that gives us a good level of humility when we consider our calling. Well, I was called because I'm kind of a champion. I don't know if you know or not, you know. Or maybe even Jude. Well, I was called because I'm the brother of Jesus Christ, you know. It's not because of our works, it's not because of our pedigree. It's not about our race, but it's about our grace. It's because of his own purposes in grace that he's called us. He has got his own plan in saving us. And in Ephesians, it speaks of the own purposes of his grace to the glory of his grace. Even at the end of the day, it's not about us. And it's not about us being saved. Those are great, beautiful benefits. And it doesn't mean there was no purpose behind that. But at the end of the day, his great calling For us to be saints is that he would receive the glory and be exalted and be lifted high. And so Jude writes to those who are called and he writes to those who are sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart. To be set apart, to be different from this world. And it speaks of not the past action, but the present action that's going on in a Christian's life. We are being set apart from the system of the world, from the old ways of doing things, from our old sinful nature. Day by day, we're growing in the grace of Jesus, being conformed into his image. And we're being set apart from the old us, and we're being set apart from the world. Now, while all of that is true, I think the New King James Version is one of the only versions that translates it as sanctified. Most of the others, and as some would say the better translation here is those who are loved. Those who are loved or beloved. And it speaks of God being a God of love. God being a God who is cherishing those that he has redeemed. And then those that are preserved. Or those that are kept. And that speaks of our future. We have a past of Calling, We have a present of being sanctified and being beloved. And we have a future that we can trust that we will see the Lord face to face and be with him, not by our good works of righteousness, but because of what he has done and what he's doing in us. We have that hope of being kept today, tomorrow, 10, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, he will keep us. And this is something that Jude speaks on quite a few times At least three in this book. You might jump over and look at verse uh, 21, where he speaks to these called, sanctified, beloved, uh, preserved people, and he tells them, Keep yourselves in the love of God. And so there's a bit of this, like, discipline and, and, you know, just the devotion that we have in Christ as Christians that we, day by day, Keep ourselves. He keeps us, amen. And he works in us to keep ourselves also. How do we do that? Verse 21 goes on to say, by looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. How far do we do that? Unto eternal life. Do you guys see that persevering and persistence and that keeping here? So to those who are called, Those who are sanctified or beloved, those who are preserved, they got the preservative, you know, we're like the jam, the jelly, we're going to last, praise God, right? And part of how that happens is we preserve ourselves by meditating upon the gospel, by remembering the mercy of God, by looking to eternity, by looking to eternal life. And of course, that speaks to our future. John tells us in Jesus' great prayer there before he's crucified, three different times he says, uh, keep them through your name, those to whom you've given me. Then he goes on to say, I kept them in your name. He's speaking of his disciples. And then he goes on to say, I have kept none of them I've lost, except for the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot. Whether it's John 6.39 or John 10 28 or 2 Timothy 4.18 or 1 Peter 1, 1.5, God is a God who keeps us. And we can have great hope in that. Also, if you're still in Jude, not much of a reason to move past that. Look at verse 24. Now unto him who is able to. You guys with me today? Okay. Keep you from stumbling. He's able to keep us and preserve us and to present us faultless before his presence, the presence of his glory. And it will be with this tone of exceeding joy. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, echo, echo. Now, why am I spending so much time on this, this calling by grace, this this sanctification by grace, this being loved by grace, this perseverance by grace, because Jude lays a foundation before he gets into some of this consternation or even condemnation of the heretics that we can just rest assured that, that our foundation is built on Christ. Our foundation is built on, on the perfect work of Jesus, the, the, the death of Jesus on the cross where his blood was shed. Our hope is built upon the empty tomb that he's risen from the dead and it vindicates him and validates him of everything that he ever said he, w- he is and was and would be. And because of that we have this great future and we have this great hope and it's so good to go into some of the tough topics of scripture having such a foundation. And we're just in the introduction. Look at verse 2. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, speaking of the compassion and the pity of the Lord. It's a characteristic of God that moves him to seek relationship with people who have no right for him to do that. But he just does it because he's good and merciful We have peace in Jesus. Maybe you come here today and and you don't have peace in your life. You don't have freedom from worry. You're anxious. Your hair has turned more shades of gray in the last weeks or month because you're anxious about things. And I would say, man, run to Jesus. Be in Jesus. Come to Jesus. He's merciful. And that removes so much anxiety when we know... He's a merciful God. He's a gracious God. He brings peace to those who've partaken of his grace and mercy. And then there, love. Notice the, the trio there of mercy, peace, and love. Love that would be multiplied to you. And that's something special about Jude's letters. It's not added to you, certainly not divided to you, and certainly not subtracted but a multiplication, exponential mercy, peace, and love. And that can just be prayed over us today as well. And all of that foundation being laid of, A, our past that we're called to, uh, that we are sanctified, that we are preserved or kept, that we have been partakers of his mercy, his peace, and his love, Now we're going to get into some stuff. Okay? And That's essentially how he transitions. Look at verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. There's a constant threat of false teachers and enemies of the gospels That Christian must be continually defending, championing the truth that we have in the scripture. Apparently Jude wanted to write and just talk about how great it is, how sweet it is to be loved by Jesus. But there were some current issues at hand that he had to dive in a little bit deeper. There was a necessity, there was some sort of pressure. We don't know exactly what it was. This distress or this trouble that just made it inevitable that an apostle had to write a letter about this. An apostle had to had to speak out against something that was happening in the current world culture. There was an exhortation or an urging that needed to take place. The Phillips translation says, I feel compelled to make my letter to you an earnest appeal. What is that appeal? that you would be one who contends earnestly. I'd encourage you to take your pen, and I hope that you've already been underlining all those wonderful gospel indicatives upon your life of being called, sanctified, preserved, having mercy, peace, and love multiplied to you today. But here we have uh, an imperative from an earnest apostle that we would contend earnestly for the faith. The word contend earnestly in the Greek is epige agonize okay? And it speaks of agonizing and struggling for the faith that saves us, the gospel that saves us. Again, the Phillips translation says, put up a real fight for the faith. Don't be a pansy. Don't be a chocolate soldier melting at the first hint of danger. Be those who have Bible in hand, ready to reason, ready to struggle and agonize for the gospel's sake. Stand up for the gospel. And this is something that we see the the fathers of the faith, the early church fathers doing regularly. And it's so sweet and refreshing to read church history and to see those fathers of the faith do so as well. Let's look at some key phrases that show just a little bit of what Agonizing for the faith, or contending for the faith, or putting up a fight for the faith—how that looks. Look at Acts chapter six, verses uh, well eight through ten, but we're really just going to look at uh, the last couple of words of verse nine and ten. So this is Stephen. He's one of the first deacons. He's preaching the gospel with power. The Jews don't like that. They come and lay hands on him, and he gets an opportunity to speak of the gospel. But when this would be happening, it says that these Jews would dispute with Stephen. So sometimes in our agonizing for the faith, in our contending for the faith, there's a dispute. Praise the Lord. In this case, it says that these Jews were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now, Philip wasn't, or Stephen rather, wasn't a guy that would shirk back at these times, but he was a bulldog, man. He, he would speak right back, and they couldn't resist those words. A couple chapters later in Acts chapter 9, we see that Saul, recently converted, increased more and more in strength, and it says that he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving That this Jesus is the Christ. So all of you that are in this room today who are called, sanctified, beloved, being preserved, you know the mercy of Christ upon your life. You know the peace of God upon your life. You know the love of God upon your life. You have a calling on your life now to earnestly contend for the faith of the Lord Jesus. It's time for you to be able to open up your mouth and dispute with people about the gospel. To be able to confound people about Jesus. To be able to prove that this Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. In Acts chapter 17, verse 3, he would explain and demonstrate that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And he said specifically, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So what does it mean to contend earnestly for the faith? It means, like the Apostle Paul in Athens, that you can explain Jesus. It means that you can display Jesus. Put a slideshow together, people. PowerPoint is practically free. Get some Google Images and write about Jesus and have it on your phone and just start. I actually have slideshows to take to Nepal that are like, we don't speak the same language, but do you get this? And do you get this? Oh, yeah, and this, this is you. Oh, but this is what he does for you. Oh, and this is what took you. Know. Can you display that Jesus is... I'll forward it to all of you guys. You can just use it, okay? Some pretty stellar Google Images, Okay. <laughs> Don't notice the watermark on those pictures that are like copyright infringement 2002. Okay, that, I put that there. So, <coughs> just don't want anyone stealing my stuff. Well, you guys are awake again. That's nice. Okay, Acts chapter 18. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So, what does it look like to contend earnestly for the faith? Reason with people. Contend with people. Persuade people, rather. Persuade people. Know the arguments. It says later on there in uh, verse 5, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So what does it mean to earnestly contend? Well, it means to, in the spirit, testify that Jesus is the Christ. If you're there, I don't know. What do we got? I don't know that Russell was on verses today. I don't know that he got them all. Um, He was like throwing up. So I was like, oh, you have a chore and you will do it. Um, But there in Acts 18, verse 28, it goes on to say that Paul vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing, by the way, from the scriptures... That Jesus was the Christ. So does it mean to contend earnestly for the faith? Know your Bibles. Vigorously refute. Show from the scriptures. To be able to say, look, this isn't my opinion. This is Bible stuff here. Oh, well, it's your interpretation of the Bible. Have a a conversation about that. Well, let's talk about interpretation. Let's talk about rules of interpretation. Let's talk about the historicity and the historical belief of what this meant. Let's talk about the councils that were held to determine what this meant. Let's talk about this stuff. Earnestly contend, Calvary Chapel. Look in Philippians 1.27. It's at the end of the verse where he says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind. Striving together for the faith of the gospel, as a church, as the people of God, who have been called, sanctified, preserved, have had the mercy, the peace, and the love of God multiplied to you. Stand fast in one spirit. Get in the triple threat position when it comes to being able to speak about the faith. Wiggle to the side. They dodge you this way. Oh 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 oh. Watch for the Meg. Watch for the Meg. They'll come at you with the Meg. Right? You can say that from the pulpit. It's an athletic term. Okay. First Thessalonians 2.2. 2. Maybe you can't say that from the pulpit. I don't know. But even after we'd suffered before, and we were spitefully treated, Paul says, he says, you know, we were bold in our God To speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So I'm sorry that we're just jumping verse to verse and it's not up there. I apologize to you guys. I know that that's difficult to follow. So just listen. What does it mean to earnestly contend for the gospel? Thessalonians tells us it means to be bold and brave and courageous in our God. It means to speak the gospel of our God in much conflict. Just listen to some of these phrases as I pepper you with them. In 1 Timothy, it says, wage the good warfare. In 1 Timothy, it says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. In 2 Timothy 1, it says, hold fast the pattern of sound words. In 2 Timothy 4, it says, I've fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have laid hold on eternal life. In Revelation chapter 2, it says you're about to suffer. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. What does it mean to contend earnestly for the gospel? It means be faithful unto death. To contend for this faith that was once for all delivered. Did you see that at the end of verse... uh, Three, a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Those of you that know that phrase, once for all, it takes you to the book of Hebrews, doesn't it? To Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10, where the language repeatedly says that Jesus Christ went once for all, shed his blood once for all, was the payment for our sins once for all, And as you read those passages, I was planning on reading it with you, but we don't have it today, so we're not going to. Hallelujah. Will you do it with me? But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, the sprinkling of the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You jump one chapter over to Hebrews ten ten. It says by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's important to highlight and understand and to know these once for all phrases, because friends out in what might be called Christianity today, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is not preached. It's not preached that he died once for all offering up his body once for all, shedding his blood once for all as the propitiation and the atonement for our sin. Rather, what is preached out even in our community is that Jesus dies every time a priest offers him up again and again and again, that that bread and that cup is truly propitiatory at that moment because Jesus died again. So this morning, according to people in our own community, Jesus died again today. And that didn't just happen in Prineville. It happened all over the world. And what that does is it puts us under a trip of works-based salvation rather than in rejoicing that it's already been accomplished, that Jesus is the true and better high priest, tabernacle, lamb, uh, 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 tabernacle, high priest, lamb, just thinking of my Hebrews here. Jesus is the true and more perfect fulfillment of those things where we don't have to wait once a year. We don't have to wait every time. We don't have to exchange priests all the time. We've got it done now. It's been accomplished. And that's why when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said with victory, it is finished. Te telestai. Amen. We'll be celebrating that next Friday. As the worship team comes back up, We're only making it through verse 3 today. Alistair Begg says, when you go wrong on the doctrine of the atonement, the atonement, what the blood of Jesus accomplishes for us and the forgiveness of sins, it's only a matter of time that everything else follows. Christianity bears testimony of what happens when men drift from the moorings of authentic, historical Christian faith. When they begin to view Christianity as a process toward an understanding of God. When that happens, virtually any view may be entertained. Any view may be tolerated, just so long as the insight does not claim finality. And so what we have here in the book of Jude and what we're going to get into in a couple of weeks from now is that certain men will creep in and begin to preach and teach other doctrines that draw people away from the moorings, from the foundation, from the anchor of the scriptures that preach that there is a holy God who created men in his image, that those men rebelled against that God. And were cursed with a sinful nature. That in that time, God gave them displays and examples of how he was going to redeem them. And they took those displays and examples and became prideful in those things. And tried to attempt to be those things themselves. And so Jesus came as part of the grand plan to lay down his life and to deal with the sin problem once for all. That his blood that people hate is preached atones for sin. That his body being broken, people hate that that's preached is the sponge that absorbed the wrath of God. That his body didn't stay in that tomb, but he rose again on the third day. That he doesn't leave us as orphans, but he sends the Holy Spirit to live in us and empower us and give us the new nature and an ability to live for God and be on his mission. And that one day we will be with him again in a Garden of Eden-type scenario, in paradise, with our God, because of what He's done. And when these people begin to pull us away from these anchors that teach such things, with a disbelief in these things, come all kinds of hideous and heinous behaviors to follow. And you see it in the text as we go on sensuality, licentiousness, all kinds of grotesque things follow when we toss out the doctrines, the beliefs of our Lord Jesus Christ. I was all ready to get into it even more, man. I'm reading a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer right now and he went through exactly what we're talking about back in Germany and I can't wait to read some of his biography with you guys and kind of share how he contended earnestly for the faith. What a task, huh? What a task. When we are pulled loose from the moorings of the word of God, we begin to forget that we've been called from before the foundation of the world. We forget that hope. We forget that we're beloved. We forget that we have a future and a hope and that he will keep us and preserve us. When we don't meditate upon His mercy and upon His peace and upon His love toward us and that it's multiplied to us, we forget to praise Him and worship Him. We forget to stay on point with Him. And we stumble and we bumble and we backslide and we fumble. And Lord Jesus, we just pray right now as a church in Prineville, Oregon, That we would be those that rejoice in our calling. That we are humbled and reciprocal in the love and the beloved. That we would consider you beloved, Lord. That we would rejoice in the hope of heaven. And as we have such hope, we would be zealous, we would be bulldogs we would be warriors for the gospel. We would contend earnestly. We would put up a fight for the gospel. We would have a tear in our eye as we share and we reason because we realize that the opponents have a destiny of torment and wrath for rejecting you, Jesus. Even read somewhere this week that a tear-filled sermon This isn't manipulation, but it often brings a tear-filled response. Lord, that as we share with our friends and our neighbors, that we would genuinely care and we would have the tears, the earnest care for the lost. And that they would be moved, they would be persuaded. As we reason, as we convince Lord, let it happen first in us. Let it happen first in us. You stand with me today and let's just rejoice in the gospel. Let's rejoice in the foundation that he's given us. And let's just allow him to pour himself out afresh on us and just give us a a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that we could be those bold, contenders of the faith, just had that word of Rocky, you know, I should have been a contender, you know, and that we would be able to say, yes, Lord, we want to be contenders for the faith once for all delivered. Go ahead, Johnny.